Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to my guest about the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they loathe, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is one of the great stand-up comedians of the past 30 years, and certainly the most distinctive, Omid Jalili. Since first appearing at the Edinburgh Festival in 1995 with the show Short Fat Kebab Owner's Son, Omid has toured the world a number of times, always with sell-out shows. He's had his own HBO special in the USA, his own series on the BBC, and has hosted Have I Got News For You. On stage, he's played Fagin in Oliver and Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof and played major roles in the films Gladiator, The Mummy, Mean Machine, the Bond film The World Is Not Enough, Notting Hill, Pirates of the Caribbean, At World's End, The Infidel, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, and Sex in the City 2. And that's just the films. Or some of them, anyway. His list of TV credits is three times as long. For example, he was a regular in the US sitcom Whoopi, starring Whoopi Goldberg, and has been in everything from Black Books to My Family and Other Animals to Kenzian and His Dark Materials. Omid won a Best Supporting Actor International Film Award for his performance in Casanova, starring alongside Heath Ledger and Jeremy Irons. And perhaps most impressive of all, he was the voice of Trumper in the Shaun the Sheep movie. I could go on, but I'd rather let Omid do it. So here is Omid Jalili and the five things he choose to put in a time capsule. And a few other things, obviously. Before we start, this episode was recorded before the tragic death of the great Sean Locke. Now, Omid does mention him in this episode, but in such a lovely way that we felt we should keep it in. Thanks. Let's get going. Yeah, let's do it. It's so lovely to have you on my time capsule. It's great to be here. Well, I know what a busy man you are, so I'm really grateful for you giving up an hour of your time to talk bollocks with me. 
<laughs> Always a pleasure to talk bollocks with anyone, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly after the last year we've had, oh, where amazing. I've seen you do some extraordinary things on social media, as it were. I have to say, you are probably the best lip syncer I've ever come across. <laughs> are you talking about the uh, Shoop video? Yes. Yeah, it was fabulous. I had been offered this thing, lip sync battles, and I said, no, mm. I, I can't do that. So I said no to it. And then people said, why? Why don't you do it? And I think as my kids said, why don't we go out and do some lip syncing? So that was just to see if I could do it. And then by the time I thought I could do it, then the offer had gone. So, uh, uh, so yes, thank you. I'll, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> good, good. And also you've been doing uh, concerts in another language. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, it is. It's something I was asked to do last year after the first pandemic. I was asked to do um, just to be a guest on a show. Yeah, th- mm. We've got someone called Sina Valiola, who is kind of like the Conan O'Brien of Iran. But to be like a Conan O'Brien, he has to work outside of Iran because they don't do those kind of comedy shows yeah. in Iran. So I think I went on and said a couple of – my Persian is not so good, but I, I think people found it charming. You know, in the same way people who have what you call small dick energy, I have a small <laughs> dick energy that when you've been – not, not, I'm not saying, but people, guys with small dick energy, they say, whenever I'm with a woman, they describe my performance in bed as charming. <laughs> you know, it's small <laughs> dick energy. And I think I had this small Persian language energy where it's not, it's not very good, but I spoke with confidence and I kind of sounded like Osvaldo Ardiles speaking English. Or I, I, but apparently it was very charming and it, it was apparently very funny. And Iranian culture is really very, very conservative, but also at the same time, because the Iranian regime is so brutal, the people have become extremely politically correct. They don't tolerate jokes about the other. If we do a a, a joke about Scousers being a bit kind of like nicking things, that is an absolute no-no. I know it's not politically correct to do it now, but in Iran, if you do it, it's appalling. Yeah. So I just I did a joke about a gay guy about to be executed, and the executioner says, "Any last words?" He goes, "Can I tell a joke?" I said, "Go ahead." He goes, two gays walk into a bar, and the executioner says, "You're just making this worse for yourself." <laughs> and I think that joke kind of they took it out of the interview, but then they were talking about it online, so so that so it became like a legend that I'd done this. I have no sensitivity, so I, I say appallingly offensive things (laughs) but people because i was born and raised here they kind of forgive Mm. me so i've I've got a bit of cult status there so so i'm now doing doing stuff in the persian language as well yeah your parents were persian did they come over to england well they they came my my parents got married in 58 and they moved to britain after spending some time in germany but my mother was a seamstress and she wanted to she'd heard about carnaby street she'd heard about London being like a swinging place in the late 50s, swinging 60s. Yeah. And so uh, they moved here. My dad was a liaison officer at the Iranian embassy in Kensington. And um, we just kind of stayed. And they were very funny people. I mean, I, I, my dad was the kind of person who at a formal event would, you know, Iranians are very much, you've got to get up and dance. And he'd say, no, I don't want to dance. Please dance. Because I can't dance. But you've got to come and they drag you out. And then he'd start dancing. And he would have like loosened his trousers so his trousers would fall down <laughs> you know in a, in a very formal event yeah and my mother was very much into joke construction and, and joke structure so she, she'd tell a joke when i was telling her, i don't understand it 
She goes, well, this is it. I said, but does that, doesn't make sense. She goes, no, but it's a surprising. When you, when you, you'll understand one day, joke writing and joke construction is you set something up and there's something surprising at the end. It emits laughter. Mm. So it's interesting. I came from parents who were very much into comedy, but I suppose weren't really allowed to do it because, you know, in Iranian culture, there's only three careers ahead of you. One is either medicine or law or social disgrace. <laughs> so, uh, not many people went into social disgrace, but I, I grabbed that wheel with both hands. Yeah. Now, it, I'm only going to talk to you about this now because I just happened to look at it this morning when I, I did that thing that you do where you Google people. Mm. And right at the start of it, it said your parents were Baha'is. And uh, I only mention it now because I, some time ago, I read most of the Baha'i writings. No. Are you being curious? Yeah, no, seriously, wow, in English. Incredible. It is incredible because it's a very unknown religion, isn't it? And it's a very small group of people who follow it. And it's a very forgiving religion. That's the thing I remember reading. You know, I'm not at all religious. And then I read it and thought, this is completely harmless. It was extraordinarily sort of um, friendly and open. It's amazing. The prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, who was um, prisoner in the prison city of Acre in Palestine, which is now Israel, which is why a lot of Baha'is are... We're accused of being Zionists because our, you know, Baha'i holy places uh, mm. were in Palestine and now it's Israel. And um, he wrote to all the kings and rulers. Yes, amazing. Proclaiming who he was. The only monarch who wrote back was Queen Victoria. Yeah. She was the only person who wrote back who said, if this is from God, it will endure. If this is not from God, no harm will come of it. <laughs> so... She was like saying, there's nothing wrong with this at all, you know. And it's interesting, um, then Queen Marie of Romania became a Baha'i. And interestingly, having come across one or two of the royal family members, they're very proud. They're very proud of the fact that there was a Baha'i, a queen in their family. Because the Baha'i faith is, uh, if you don't know much about it, it's a faith that grew, it grew out of Islam in the same way Christianity grew out of Judaism. Mm. So Christianity is a completely different faith to Judaism, but there is a connection so the Baha'i faith is a totally independent world faith, but there is that connection with, I suppose, monotheistic religion. So it believes in the one God, it believes that religion is all from the same book, and the Baha'is believe that their their faith is a, is, a, is the latest but not the last chapter. No, it's a very interesting viewpoint, isn't it, that actually you know, Muhammad and Jesus are prophets from the one God. Yes. And that this is... The, the name of the prophet is Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah, that's right, yes. Which means glory of God. And actually mm. Christ does say he, he comes back in, in the glory of the Father. So there is that connection, but in the Baha'i faith, it makes it very, very clear that if you reject one of these prophets of God, you're rejecting them all. Mm. So in a sense, I believe in Moses, I believe in Buddha, I believe in Krishna, I believe absolutely in Jesus. But by accepting Baha'u'llah, it does not, I suppose it doesn't say that those, forget them, they're all, they're all part of the same. But it's like reading a book. You can't say, well, forget about chapter three. Mm. Chapter seven is where it's happening. Well, you know, you may be on chapter seven, there's a chapter eight coming. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting paradigm in how to look at life, which I think is very, it's very helpful. We're always looking for paradigms to make sense of who we are, why we're here, where are we going when we die. Mm. So yes, I, if you're talking about what I'd put in the time capsule, definitely <laughs> the Baha'i faith would be one of the first things, only because it's given me so much joy of understanding who we are, why we're here, all those big things. And I think if I wasn't a Baha'i, I'd definitely be an atheist. I, I don't like religion. I think religion has caused so much, so much damage mm. 
in the world. But then even that is explained that religion is something that needs to be renewed. Religion is something that it has a sell-by date. You know, in the same way Muslims didn't eat pork because the way they treated pigs in those days, you ate, you ate pig meat, you got ill. All that stuff about having four wives or something, that was because men used to go to war and there were way more women than men. So that was a law of Islam that, again, has been abrogated by the Baha'i faith. Religion is something that's progressive. That's why we call it progressive revelation. So it's not something that is like, you believe this and that's it. Mm. There's no dogma in it. So it is something that uh, progresses. And, you know, people like you, you're obviously a very reasonable person. You read about the Baha'i faith and, and you remember that it wasn't something that was harmful. So No, when I read the stuff and I thought, well, I quite like this bloke. <laughs> and I like the fact that it was only then, what, 1890 or something. He's in prison. He's sending yeah. letters all over the world to people saying, look, this is the message I've been given. I am the latest prophet. Which, you know, yes. anybody who stood up and claimed that, the world would say, well, you're mad. It happened to every other prophet. Yes, I know. Yeah. And that's the thing. But but it's interesting you say it's a small group of people, but it's, it's actually the, the second most widespread faith on the planet right now, and it's the fastest growing. Uh, and, and I think that's the, that's the amazing, next to Christianity, I think it's the most widespread faith. And it's, it's actually a very cool faith. It's, I mean, when I meet other Baha'is, who uh, are in showbiz, like there's Rain Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute in The Office. You know, yeah. these are two people who really love the Baha'i faith, Sean Locke and Bill Bailey. Mm-hmm. They're the two. And I remember one coming back from Harrogate, and he kept asking me, Sean, well, what do you do? And what's he goes, you I want to be a Baha'i. This is fantastic. And, 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 and what is your worldview? How are you going to change the world? God, this is, he goes, everyone should be Baha'i. This is amazing. And then he said, I've got a big question. He said, uh, do you guys drink? I said, no, we don't drink alcohol. He goes, ah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I said, well, you can still, he goes, no, he goes, no, nah, I could never give up the drink. I said, well, you, you don't, just because you can't give up something. A lot of people don't give up things just because, and he says, no, if you join something, like something as wonderful as the Baha'i faith, it's all or nothing for me. If I can't do it all, I won't do any of it. Yeah. And he said, I have too much respect for this. Because uh-huh. all you want, the last thing you want was a drunk one person like me. Now I think oh, I'll get drunk, punch someone. Because you're best off without me. Oh, that's nice, though, isn't it? Because you do hear people sort of go, no, I'm a bit Buddhist. You go, a bit, a bit Buddhist. Oh, okay, fine. You know, I try not to kill ants. <laughs> oh, well done. I mean, I'm actually amazed that we're, we're, we're having this podcast. Every podcast of yours I've heard, it's always hysterical in the first Oh, I like to bring the changes. And actually, the idea of putting things into a time capsule from your life is really to look at parts of your life that you wouldn't normally talk about. Yes. You sort of go, well, you know, let's talk about something that you treasure from your childhood. Let's talk about something before you were an actor, before you were famous. Oh, completely. And and one of the first things I put in the time capsule was my time in the former Czechoslovakia uh, around 1989. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the Berlin Wall was coming down. And, and amazingly, all those pictures of David Hasselhoff at the wall, New Year's Eve, I was there amazingly when it all kicked off. I went straight to Berlin. People don't realize that that was a huge moment in history. We were not allowed to go across the Iron Curtain. I mean, I remember going with my school to East Berlin, but it was very difficult. We went to we went on a school trip and we went to East Berlin just for an afternoon. That was it. <laughs> and we had these special visas and then we went in, we looked around and I never forgot it. And I remember thinking, that is so crazy. Obviously following the Olympics, Czechoslovakia had these, they always seemed to have so many steroids in them. They seemed bigger, <laughs> stronger than us. And when the opportunity came to visit those places and certainly at the Berlin Wall, 
getting a pickaxe and knocking bits of it down and selling pieces for five Deutschmarks, which is like, <laughs> you know, three or four quid. I was doing that. And then they said, hey, there's a Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. That, that's next. Right, let's go. And I went there. And because there had been lots of Baha'is, actually, in Czechoslovakia, we went and reconnected with those people who hadn't seen Westerners for 40 years, wow. Western Baha'is. And, and it was interesting to meet those people. And I lived there. I lived there for five years. Uh, I lived first in Bratislava and then uh, a town called Trnava and then Brno, where there was a center for experimental theater. So I, I, my whole theater life, I'd studied uh, theater at university, mm. but doing experimental theater where, I mean, my goodness, Michael, seriously, I never forget being in a play where opening scene, black stage, pin spot on a goldfish being lowered from the top of the stage on a string, pin spot comes down, comes this height, lights come up, I've got a Magnum 44, I go click, a small explosive device goes, and I shout, the goldfish is obliterated, and I go at the top of my voice, Lenin, blackout, no clue, no clue what's going on. But that was it, they said, you are, you are made for us, this is the place you should be, experimental theatre, we are going to reach the world. My professional life started there, I was doing children's theatre, and then they wanted to see plays that had been banned. So mm. we did Eugene Ionesco's The Chairs, which they hadn't seen. Uh, I know Stephen, they'd heard of Stephen Burkhoff. They said, can you do some Burkhoff? We said, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll I put our decadence for mm. them. So it was an amazing, and we brought these amazing directors over. I mean, Sir Peter Hall's son, Edward Hall, he came out and directed the play. So I, w I was keeping my contacts in Britain with good people but at the same time, we were doing very exciting uh, work in the former Czechoslovakia. And then I started my stand-up career there because I'd learned the language. I'd learned Slovak. Yeah. But there was a real, I suppose, boom for English speaking. So I said, look, I'm developing a, a stand-up show. Do you want to see it? And so they were paying me a thousand crowns, which is 20 quid. I had to go all the way to Preshov, which is Eastern Slovakia. <laughs> because we have 250 people there. And I started to say, good evening. My, name's, my name is Omid. Omid means hope. It's a shame that Jalili means less. <laughs> no laughter. I said, okay. No, no. Nothing, nothing was getting laughed. So then I said, do you, do you speak English? And they, I didn't get anything back. Then I said, which means do you speak English? And this voice in the dark said, which means very little. So I said, which means let's carry on in Slovak. So it, it emptied the room. People were leaving. And it was like five or six or seven people were left and three people watching who were helping me with the Slovak language because it was pigeon. And there were three or four, I'll never forget, three or four kind of KGB-type people watching in a kind of postmodern, post-Marxist way of, let's see the Westerners struggle with our language <laughs> kind of thing. And I sat there trying to finish my show, and then literally I said, that's it, it's finished. And it was only about seven people, and then just this slow hand clap started. <laughs> and I thought, I've done it! I've arrived! I'm a stand-up in Czechoslovakia! Uh, it was a wonderful experience. So that that would be, uh, I think, my formative years, five years there. Yeah, absolutely. And and that nerve, that carries on right through your career. That sort of slightly absurdist element that you've always had in stand-up. I mean, I, I remember a routine you used to do playing the drums. You used to play timpani. You, you'd just yes. sing ridiculous songs and then play the drums for a bit then tell a joke, no real reason to it. it, almost inexplicable, but incredibly funny as a result. I think that whatever it was, it was, I think I screamed, take me for what I am. It was some <laughs> kind of 
plea. There was an existential plea for you to accept my my existence <laughs> on, on a ridiculous existential level. I just felt people didn't know me. But if I played bongos, I can't even remember what the routine was. But I think there's always been that kind of experimental, because I've come from experimental theatre and mm. I was always doing terrible plays, you know, upstairs at the Oxford Arms at the in Camden. There was the Etc. Theatre Club. There was all these ephemera arms. I did so many years on the London Fringe doing ridiculous Fringe theatre. I think it kind of affected my stand-up. So the stand-up became... Here's actually, here's the other thing I want to put into the time capsule. Mm -hmm. It was that same sense of anarchy coming from an experimental theater background that then got me some kind of mainstream success because around 2002, 2003, I'd been to Montreal just before the Edinburgh Festival and I had all these bizarre television companies trying to do a deal. It was like very few times British comedians get picked up for a talent holding deal. Mm -hmm. I know Bruce B. Graffo had one. Um, Lee Evans had one. Very few of us had them, but they were chasing me. It was just after 9-11. Mm. And then what happened was I signed a deal to do my own show on NBC. Oh, wow. And, and I, I remember being very, very uncomfortable because I thought, I thought this, is, this is not good. This is not good to go to America before I've made it in Britain. Mm. But they kept saying, we want you because we've been looking for someone like you, someone who can cross over. Your, your humor is a bit wacky, but I think we'll like it. We want to do a show with you. And then the tanks rolled into Iraq around March 2003. They said, look, we can't have you do your own sitcom right now, but we can use you as an actor in someone else's sitcom. So Whoopi Goldberg invited me to do her sitcom. And she said the same thing. She said, you're, you're completely, you're crazy, you're nuts. And she said, um, are you a Muslim? I said, no, I'm a Baha'i. She went, oh, I like Baha'is. Baha'is <laughs> are cool. So that it really helped me because yeah. I think she, she thought it would be a problem if I was a Muslim because – There'd be so many sensitivities, especially this is just after 9-11 as well. So we did, we did a pilot. It was meant to be like Faulty Towers. They bought the um, Faulty Towers. So she was Basil. And I was a Polly, Sybil, and Manuel conglomerate <laughs> running the hotel with her. But uh, it was an amazing experience. And I'll tell you why, because it was a, a multi-camera sitcom. And I've never learned so much in my life. Now, I'm speaking to you now as an actor, not a comedian. Mm. You know, as actors... We're quite humble over here. And if there's an extra wants to talk to you, we'll talk to them. We'll probably chat them. We might even get involved in their lives sometimes. <laughs> an extra would say, would you come and do a charity? Yeah, of course. Yeah. In America, you're not even allowed to talk to them. They don't even call them extras. They call them atmosphere. Did you know this? No. Wow. That's the word, atmosphere. They'll say atmosphere. Could you? Oh, my God. And in this country, they're offended by the word extra. Yeah. Supporting cast, they would be called. You're a supporting cast. Before that, it was background artists, mm. I think they even said. Whereas over there, I learned they won't even make eye contact. I remember talking oh, to some of them. I said, hey, how do you feel about being atmosphere? And they would look away. I said, come on. I said, hey, 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 come on. Look, here's $20. Next time they call you atmosphere, I'll give $20 to anyone who says, hey, it's ambiance to you. <laughs> and they wouldn't even look at me. No. They wouldn't even make eye contact. So that, I thought was very interesting. But the main reason I want to put this in the time capsule is because of Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. She was someone who um, was not just a co-actor or actress or whatever you want to call her. She was, she was like a mentor because she said, now listen, you people, meaning brown people, you're about 30 years behind black people. Because she did something. She shouted at the writers. I think there was, she could see my frustration that every week 
we we play around with the script and and every time the first script would always be back to doing Ayatollah jokes. It was all very, very two dimensional. Mm. And she, by episode eight, just, she gave this tirade. And then she goes, Ayatollah jokes. Is that the best you got? <laughs> this guy's an award winning comedian from Britain. We're honored to have him. And he's showing you how to rap for him. He's doing high level stuff and you, you can't even keep up. If I see one more Ayatollah joke, you're out. And I said to her, thank you. And she goes, she goes, I got you back, baby. I got you back. And she'd say, you gotta understand. You're like the Richard Pryor of ground people. I said, I said, don't compare me. She goes, no, no, no. Pryor for us was someone who showed us the way. He was doing stuff for white folks, and then he realized that was not authentic. So he started doing stuff about him and who he was, and that was revolutionary. So she was really encouraging me to write my own stuff, keep doing stand up, and she kept saying, never stop doing stand up because you have to have an authentic voice. And I said, yeah, but I was born and raised in Britain. So mm. she goes, whatever it is, baby, you got to be you. And the black community will always support the brown community because you, you need help. Because no, nobody helped us, but we will support you. And she did everything she could to support me. And then she reminded me, this was a huge thing. She goes, uh, she, she kept saying you and Billy. And I, I kept saying, she kept saying, I bring you and Billy. I don't know who she was talking about. About, about six months in, I said, I'm really sorry. You keep talking about this. Who's Billy? <laughs> And she went, Billy Connolly. And I said, what's he got to do with me? She goes, God damn it. You're the only two people I introduced to America. I said, what? Because apparently she introduced him. She took him over. She and- did famously. She famously yeah. put on shows, invited hordes of, of celebrities. Come and see this man. He's a genius. I think, do you know what? From what she said, she had an HBO special, but she gave most of it to him. I think that was it. Yeah. was her special. She did 15 minutes and the rest of it was him. So she kept saying, you two people make me laugh like I was crying. So I said, that's the Billy you're talking. I said, you cannot compare me to Billy Connolly and Richard <laughs> Pryor. You just can't do that. I said, you have no idea. So I've never talked about that, but just for my ego, also for my <laughs> ego. And you love this story. For her 50th birthday, you know, she knows everyone. Whoopi Goldberg's one of those people. She's an Oscar winner. At her birthday, the Sting was there. Robert De Niro and all these huge people have come to her birthday party. And she said to me something like, no, no, I know you're going to say some shit. So you better be on your best behavior. (laughs) I don't want you ruining things. And I think she already saw me with sting. It was a fifties theme thing, but I came wearing tails. (laughs) I think I came wearing tails and a bow tie. And sting said, what have you come as? I said, I've come as Dracula. And he said, why? It's the fifties thing. And I kept going, and she just pulled me away from me. She goes, I told you, you're not going to say shit to me. She goes, you, you, you're an asshole, and I'm going to keep you away. So she then put me on her, and this is just such a brilliant story. She put me in this table where there were two people on each side of me, and there was a table in front, so I couldn't get out. She goes, stay there and don't move, because she just thought I'm going to embarrass her. And, and then Robert De Niro came in, and apparently his girlfriend had been watching this show and really liked my character. And then I just saw Robert De Niro, who, if you don't know, De Niro is, for our generation, he's not one of the best actors. Mm. I've always wanted to meet De Niro or Pacino, and he just appeared. I didn't know they're good friends. He just appeared, and and he just said, hey, he's here, he's here. And he was pointing at me, he's here. And then his girlfriend said, oh, my God, (laughs) oh, and she was talking to me, and and I said, what's going on? He goes, yeah, sorry, um, 
she thought you were someone else. We, we watched the show. You're very funny. And uh, yeah, she thought you were uh, that guy there. But I said, that's not him. It's him here. <laughs> and we started talking. He, they'd just been announced that he'd had bowel cancer. Probably, you know, he's since recovered, but he just had bowel cancer. Mm. It would just been in the news the day before. And uh, I really wanted to give him a hug. And I couldn't. And I said, Mr. De Niro, because his girlfriend was talking to me and they were talking to me. Can you imagine there's five, six people there, but they're only honing in on me. So I was a bit embarrassed. And I said, if I could get up, I'm, I'm stuck. Whoopi's put me, he's just, she's kind of shackled me in. If I get up, I give you a hug. And he goes, Hey, don't worry about it. Christmas time. We'll kiss on the lips. We'll, we'll do the whole British soccer player in the seventies. He goes, we'll kiss on the lips. And I started laughing and then everyone else started laughing. And he had this, comedic thing where he thought that's not I have to go further and he says hey you know uh kiss on the lips that maybe you'll take me in the ass might do me some good <laughs> and I thought oh my god he's just done a joke about me helping him with his bowel cancer in a way I never expected that's amazing and I just said Mr. De Niro I'm at your service and it was wonderful because <laughs> that was then the first of three meetings I had with him because then six years later the film I did with David Baddiel. Mm, the Infidel. The Infidel, yeah. The mm. film, it was bought by De Niro, and I'll never forget, it was a moment when he said he loved the film. He goes, the film is great. He goes, he said, you know why we did Tribeca films? Because it was after 9-11, and we wanted to reclaim the cultural heritage of New York, but the Olive Branch was always out mm. to the Middle East. And then I'd heard about this film, The Infidel, and I just couldn't believe how funny it was. I never thought a film about Jews and Muslims could be so funny. And he mm. just said, that's great. And I, and I thought I'd had enough time with him. I said, well, thank you very much. And I started moving away and he grabbed me. He goes, where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> and he kept, look, he kept looking at me. He kept, kept doing this kind of going, fucking eyes. I can't, I can't, I can't stop laughing. You, you go, your eyes, you just make me laugh. And I just, <laughs> because there's something about you. I don't know why. And he kept saying, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you going? So I was trying to get away because I felt like a typical English I've had my time with him. Mm. And he kept grabbing me. He goes, where are you going? What are you doing next? Will you do a film with me? And, you know, because I want to wow. know what you got. He goes, oh, you got something. I don't know what you got. I, I got to learn it. And I said, I said, don't be stupid. You can't learn anything from me. <laughs> because I look at you and start, start laughing. You think I can't learn something? So he was, uh, it was just such a, a, an amazing experience to have. Yeah. And what a sign of a great man. Actually, I think all the great men I've met in my life are not at all concerned about themselves. No. They're interested in other people, always. And one thing I learned about, he's very funny as well, and, and, mm. and they say this whole thing about the actors, the older they get, they veer towards comedy. And I said to him, you're doing more comedies. And he goes, I love comedy. He goes, actually, started off. He, he goes, look at, look at the first scene of uh, Mean Streets. Look at the first scene. Tell me that's not funny. So I went back and I saw Mean Streets, and the very first time you see him, when they introduce his character, he's just put a bomb in a trash can. And it's just him walking up towards the camera and he's looking back, he's looking back, he's looking back. Then he, he does this, he looks back, and then it explodes and he runs off. It's hysterical. It's genuinely very, very funny. And he said to me, look at, look at the first scene. Tell me that's not funny. So he's, yeah. he's trying to say that he started, he said, he goes, Al was the same. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Then I did my research. Al Pacino also started off in comedy. He was a stand up comedian. He did sketch comedy and then story with him was he was always trying to be funny and Sidney Lumet says the problem with Al Pacino is he still thinks he's a comedian he doesn't realize how good he is as a dramatic actor but the way you work with Al let him do his comedy shtick for the first six takes then on the seventh take 
the one before you print, you just whisper, hey, Al, do one where you throw it away. And he goes, we would build a film on take seven, take seven or eight of everything. So Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, there's a whole host of films he did with Sidney Lumet. It's all seventh or eighth take. Really? So he's someone who never took himself that seriously either. No. So that's why they have this um, kind of weird gold dust charisma that's very hard to find. And I think that is actually not taking yourself too seriously. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, then I'm going to put that into the time capsule. Okay, good. So that's three things you've got in there. You've got the Berlin Wall, knocking bits off and selling it, and then going off to uh, Czechoslovakia and doing yes. crazy theatre. You've got working with Whoopi Goldberg. If only we could all put that into a time capsule. How fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And then De Niro. I mean, yes. just amazing, amazing. So that's three things. What else have you got? Right, it's time for an ad break now, but do stay with us. We'll be right back. Thanks. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with Omid Jalili. Let's find out what else he's going to put in his time capsule. I wonder if he'll mention anybody famous. As far as career highlights, I think everyone says great films you've done. And yeah, it was really great to be in wonderful films, life-changing films, actually. When I remember telling a, a friend of mine, a comedian called Andre Vincent, he kept saying, you're in Gladiator in the film. I said, Andre, I'm only in it for three or four minutes. He goes, it's three or four minutes more than I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And that's such a perfect comedian's answer. And, mm -hmm. and I think that when you're on these big movies, it does impact you in the sense you see the scale of it. I'll never forget the very first day was my POV, my point of view, there's a camera. So I'm behind the camera and I say, Proxima, my old friend, and there's a camera pushing on Oliver Reed, who's there and he looks. It's just my, that's my first day of shooting. The first thing I did, a camera pushing, saying my lines, as they say, to speak to Oliver Reed. And I was, it was meant to be in this AD 180 cafe and there's smoke and there's, action is it's so packed and, and i thought what an amazing scene no wonder this guy ridley scott is it's such a rich such a and i was looking at it he, he said come and watch so i was watching mm. the camera 
And then he went, cut. And I never forget, he got his cigar out. He goes, we've got a second of dead time. I need a dog or a little person. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, they bought this very small person and a dog. He goes, yeah, could you two wipe it? And then he goes, okay, let's reposition. Action. We did the same thing. Proximo, my old friend. We go in there. And at the back of the scene, you just see a dog, a dog in a small particular. And he went, okay, got it. We moved on. Wow. That was the level in which, because I said to him, um, Ridley, why are you, like, you've got a, you got a marketplace, like, there's 5,000 extras here and there's like 100 oranges, but the camera, you're only picking up two or three oranges. And he just said, the camera never lies. I said, I know it doesn't lie. He goes, he just, he said, there's something about packing a shot. If you pack it, it affects the scene. You, if, if you lie, it knows. It, and even in the edit, you'll see there's a bit of dead time there or there's a blank there where there should have been mm. oranges. But the camera really will pick up the richness if you pack the shot full. So that was an amazing experience to see And that. the last work that Oliver Reed did. Yes. Did you ever work with Oliver Reed? No, never did, sadly. I did meet him once. What was he like? He was a bit drunk. Well, that's the thing. He, apparently, he'd signed a contract not to drink on Gladiator because nobody wanted him. But Ridley Scott said, he's my man and I have to have him. So he had to sign mm. these waivers that he'll be, he'll be teetotal four months before. He'll be teetotal all throughout. Of course, you spend time, you know, 95% of this business sitting around like us. If This could be a film set where you and I are just chatting yeah. away. And then they'll, they'll say, okay, Michael and Ami, do you think, oh, for fuck's sake, we're, we're chatting here. <laughs> right you in know, the middle of an anecdote. <laughs> in the middle of an anecdote. Don't ever, ever interrupt me in the middle of an anecdote. And, um, and um, he was very gracious. And I said to him, I was a bit nervous about me. I stayed in the hotel. He goes, oh, no, that's all nonsense. I, I, he goes, I do like a drink, and I, I've stopped, and it was, it's all nonsense because I'm taking my career seriously. He's about 67 at the time, um, and, he, and he was very generous with his time. He talked to me. We, we chatted for the whole three days. We were together, and he'd sit and tell me his life story, and it was it was very sad the way he died, actually. Uh, mm. I, I've said this before, but he everyone says it's the way he wanted to go, but actually he didn't. He, he was challenged to a drinking competition, and he got alcohol poisoning very quickly and, and died. And it was such a shame because the press narrative was that that's the way he wanted to go. But actually, mm. it was devastating for the film. He never finished his scenes. And by the way, when I read Gladiator as a script, the ending is profoundly moving because it's him. He comes down and picks up Russell Crowe's character and gives this massive speech about the end of Rome and that the spirit of this centurion will go on. But... Rome is over, you're morally corrupt, and I'm going to give this guy a hero's burial. And he lifts his body up above his head and he walks him out to silence. Oh. It's meant to be totally silent. So he's, I don't know how many people are meant to be there, 20,000, 30,000 people go silent. It was very moving, but they couldn't do that. No. So I think Connie Nielsen had a line, give him a hero's burial and he's, he's a hero of Rome or something. So. Mm. People were devastated that he never finished what was in the script. For something that really, to many people, is fundamentally a perfect film, I think, Gladiator, you describing that ending makes us realise it's not. It's not the perfect film at all. That would have been extraordinary. It would have been extraordinary, and there were other things in it which uh, he had some other stuff to do which he never got. He, he finished about 75% of the movie, mm. and he was very much involved in the big denouement, which I, I having read the script... And anyone who did, we know it was it was much poorer for it. Yes, but still a great film. Yes. Okay, let's put working with Oliver Reed in Gladiator into the time capsule. Okay, Omid, what's next? There's always moments that you remember, and I think it was Prince Charles's 60th birthday party. There was an amazing collection of 
comedians. I think John Cleese was the MC. Robin Williams had come down. And I think it was myself, Michael McIntyre, Al Murray, Joe Brand. And before we did the show, we had to practice our sets. Yeah. And there's a guy called Math Brown who has a small comedy club in Kingston called Outside the Box. He invited us all to come down in a 60-seat little comedy club. And so we all were there, and there's, there's just a tiny partition between us. And we all went down there. So he said, please, we welcome Omid Jalili. And then <laughs> that wasn't enough. Here's Joe Brown. Everyone went, oh, my word. And he goes, please, would you welcome, you know, Al Murray? And people couldn't <laughs> believe it. And I'll never forget. He goes, well, we're going to leave the best for last. And um, I don't know how to introduce him, but um, please, would you welcome Robin Williams? And <sighs> no one believed it. And he came on, and there was 60 people went nuts. <sighs> Something funny happened. It was great. He just came on. And he went, good evening. How are you? And someone just went flubber like that. <laughs> and he collapsed. He actually collapsed. He goes, well, what, what do you mean flubber? Are you kidding? What? What did you say? <laughs> you were flubber, weren't you? He goes, yeah. So what? So what? I was flubber. And he had a meltdown. He had a meltdown. <laughs> and afterwards, he kind of rattled through his set. And afterwards, I said to him, what happened last night? He goes, I'm Robin Williams. I've done so much. And the best thing you're going to bring up is Flubber? Flubber? Are you <laughs> that piece of shit? It threw me. And this is this is a guy who's the best improviser in the world. He goes, it threw me. He absolutely collapsed. It was so funny. But but the, but the best moment was that after we, uh, we were doing our sets. By the way, when we say inside the time capsule, you're talking to a comedian and an actor. So I have an ego the size of Alaska. So <laughs> this, this for me was the moment. And again, it's a line that never made it. We had to practice our sets. And I remember John Cleese, going in the thing, he goes, good luck, Omid, just rattled through the set and he walked off. And I could hear Robin Williams and John Cleese saying, watch this guy, watch his set. And then Robin Williams said, he's insane, watch him. <sighs> so the two of them were watching me. And I did one joke, which they cut, which they wouldn't let me do. And I, and I, I think the joke was, um, this is a great evening. Uh, I haven't had such a good time since I did uh, the Al-Qaeda charity fundraising gig <laughs> last week. It was terrible. There was no music, no, no women, no alcohol. It was a bit like spending an evening down Cliff Richard's throat. <laughs> and they stopped. They said, you can't do that. And I remember John Cleese and Robin Williams pissing themselves saying, why? Why can't he do that? That's a brilliant joke. And the seeing the two of them scream at the producer saying, oh. why can't he use that? And I'll never forget that. I said, it's okay. Well, I won't do it. They goes, no, you, just, you do that. And he goes, no, no, there's this, this voice going, you are not doing that. And then John Cleese said, well, I'm walking. As, just as, I mean, they were like joking. But it was just such yeah. a funny moment to see the two of them giggling like schoolchildren. And then, so, so for my ego. To have Robin Williams describe you as insane. <laughs> he goes, this guy's insane. It's just brilliant. And the amazing thing was that it was only afterwards, he actually said to, he said to me, I apologise because I'd met you in New York. I'd met him in New York very briefly at a comedy club and he kept saying to me things like, you've lost so much weight and it's great to see you again and I've been such a fan of yours. And I'm thinking, you doesn't say that. And I said to him, who do you think I guess? I honestly thought you were Alexi Sale. So he thought <laughs> I was Alexi Sale. Because because I thought you'd lost a lot of weight. <laughs> I said, actually, I'm the same size. I'm the same size. Like, because I can see that. That's my ego moment. But the biggest ego moment, and this is the... Well, there's two more things. We've got, we've got to put something in 
into the ground. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Something you want to get rid of. I want to get rid of. And I really want to, and I, I wish I, I could do it. I don't know if I can. I don't think I'll even be allowed. But I wish I could put Twitter into the <laughs> ground. I'm sadly, excuse me, I've just burped in the middle of that. I'm sadly, <laughs> I'm not addicted to it, but I feel I have to tweet every now and again. And Michael, I don't know if this is an age thing, but I find that every time I tweet something that's really funny, I lose followers. And every time I tweet something nice... I lose like hundreds of followers. And there was once, I never forget this. This is, this is my relationship with Twitter. Mm. Um, very few times I get a tweet that bangs and goes like a thousand retweets. Very few times. I have the world record for someone who has over 290,000 followers that I achieve one retweet with a tweet. I often have this just one retweet <laughs> from a bloke who retweets everything I do in Tasmania. He retweets everything. Uh, one retweet and one like. And, and this is so unusual. It's it's impossible. It is impossible. But it's, you know, like Google Whack? I don't know if you saw Google Whack. It was Dave Gorman did a yeah, show. Yeah. Put in two words and you get one website. I'm yeah. the same. I do one tweet and I achieve one retweet. <laughs> You've got to find a, a word for it. I've got to find a word for it because it's impossible. It'll be a twat. <laughs> I'm, I'm the biggest twatter there is. <laughs> but I want to give you an example. And this is why I want to put it in the ground. Once I stupidly did a, I, I made a DVD, but the whole DVD market had gone. And I thought, what I'll do is I'll do a DVD download. It's only I make I'll, I'll cut the show down to forty-five minutes, and I'll give it for free. So I sent a tweet saying, "Hey guys, uh, free DVD download just for my Twitter lot. Here's the passcode. Go to this. It's for you for free download. It's yours. Mm. Fill your boots, okay?" At the same time, I saw a guy I knew called Justin Baldoni, who's in a show called um, uh, Jane the Virgin. He said, hey, same time, I saw his tweet was next to mine. Hey, guys, Jane the Virgin's back on 8 o'clock. And he posts a picture of himself, you know, with a, just in, in uh, kind of swim, swim, swimwear. He had a six-pack. He just looked like that. Mm. And he had, like, immediately a 1,000 retweets. <laughs> and I had no retweets, no likes, nothing. I left it for about two hours. I came back, and I saw his tweet had gone to 23,000 retweets. Mine had no retweets no likes, one comment saying, watch you, I'd rather kill myself, which I then retweeted and it got 800 likes. And I lost 1,500 followers. And I just thought, I don't know if this is an age thing. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my age or something. Twitter shouldn't just be a young person's game. But no, I'm, I, I really, then, and here's the thing. I had a Twitter analyst look at my stuff. I said, what am I doing wrong? And he just said, I don't know what you're doing wrong, but looking at the analysis that you have had, <laughs> 2.7 million people have followed you over 10 years. Wow. And you're left with 290. So you have had something like 2.5 million people have unfollowed you. And wow. I said, well, what, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? He said, I think you engage too much with people who are trying to engage with you there uh you engage with bots i see you told someone with no followers that they were a twat <laughs> I said, but they were a twat because yes but that's a bot you don't need to communicate with them you are very easy to rile you have long conversations with people i don't think you realize this goes on everyone's timeline they can see it and they right so i've tried to clean up my act but but he said but that is 2.5 million people have unfollowed me that's amazing isn't that it? has to be a record. It has to be. Yeah. 
Oh, Ahmed. Oh, lovely. I must follow him. Oh, for God's sake, it's driving me mad. I'm going to unfollow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm, I'm also putting it down to mild racism. I'm playing the racism card as well. <laughs> I put that to someone. He goes, no, you're just a twat. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take that as well. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, I'm sure having worked with David, you'll know how amusing it is when somebody, I'm sure you've had racist abuse, but almost certainly the wrong racist abuse. Yeah, I think the, the thing is, David and I are both from the same camp where if if a troll or someone says something, it's a heckle. I'm sure he's talked to you about that. It's yeah, a heckle, yeah. Yeah. and you try and put a heckle put down. And the thing he is that very few times a piece of humour is then appreciated by the troll. I think mm-hmm. I made a mistake recently. I said that the song, the Pink Floyd, Another Brick in the Wall, mm. I had read that um, South Africa had banned it because it was a song that made teenagers rebel. And I remember I, it was it was actually geared to my generation. It was such a, we don't need no education. Hey, teacher, <laughs> leave them kids alone. And I remember as a child being aware of being abused and seeing bad behaviour, but we never had a voice so we could never articulate so after this song, I remember a teacher shouting at a kid, just come here, I'm going to smack you or something. And I remember the whole class, we all just lifted up our shoulders and he noticed and he looked around. He goes, well, you sit down and you're lucky. Mm. We just realized we're not taking this anymore. We didn't say anything, but we just got into fight mode. Yeah. We were 13 or 14, but we thought we're not having this because that song's taught us not to take it anymore. <laughs> and, I, I remember, and I just said on Twitter, um, amazing song. It's a song that Margaret Thatcher banned, which is wrong. Margaret Thatcher never banned it. She hated it. She never banned it. So somebody then tweeted me, once again, lefties are having a go at <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. How dare you? And all this kind of... And I just wrote back, Thatcher was a, an extremist Muslim and she thought music was haram. And then the bloke... <laughs> and really, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that he just said, that's the best response I've ever had. And he quote tweeted it back. Whereas usually I've stopped doing that because the humor is not appreciated. So I'm not bothered, but that's the first time someone's appreciated a funny joke. Mm. And then I afterwards said to him, by the way, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean that. it's not Margaret Thatcher. It was actually, so I got, I got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. And all comedy is a risk. It's a difficult area. You're going to say things that some people will go, Oh, hang on a minute. No, you can't say that. He said, well, no. I, I've said it. I'm sorry. Just ignore me. I'll be in the corner making my mistakes. And I think that's fine in life. In order for comedy to work, people have to be given the chance to make mistakes. And do you know what? Going back to the Baha'i faith, that's what I was taught as a young Baha'i growing up, that it's okay to make mistakes. I was given an example of these two villages in Africa, one of which was kind of very much a Baha'i village, and they got together, and there was a village next door. They said, what's the difference between the two? And they said there was some sociological survey said in one village, Whenever somebody makes a mistake, the whole community supports them, saying it's okay, don't worry, get back up on your feet. Whereas the other one, they are brought in front of the village and they're stoned and they are mm. shamed in front of everyone. And I think that's a very important thing, not just in comedy in life, is to never be afraid to make mistakes. And I think that's where I've also, as a stand-up comedian, I'm a little bit worried that I'm, I'm 55, I'm going to go on tour again. I'm going to do and say some stupid things, stupid things that probably make the newspapers again. Mm-hmm. But actually, I mean, you should never be fearful. Just do it. And then part of life is problem solving. Then you can deal with the problem if, yeah. you've, if, you've, if you've really offended people. But, um, 
but that I think not to be afraid of mistakes. You can always apologise, can't you? You can always say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realise that was going to offend. It just came out of my mouth, I'm so sorry. And really, that should be enough. Yeah. Also, look at you, Ahmed. I mean, do you look like the sort of man who wants to upset people, who wants to hurt people? No. <laughs> no you, you want to make people laugh. Yes. And if in doing that, every now and again, somebody says, well, actually, I don't find that funny at all. I find that offensive. You go, well, then I'm sorry. There you are. Yeah, you have to know your audience. I mean, you. I mean, there are certain like roasty lines you can tell people. Like, if someone's got really shiny teeth, then you can say things like, "This is admonishment, you know, never to buy your teeth on the internet." Or, <laughs> you know, someone, an old person. You know, I've seen younger faces on cash. You say things <laughs> like that, and and if you know the audience, it's okay. But if if you say it when it's not the right audience, um, it's. And I, I have to say, I've learned that. I've learned a little bit more about who the audience is. I just mm. haven't haven't worked out the Twitter audience yet. No. That's the thing I'm, that's the thing I'm working on. <laughs> okay, well, Twitter's gone in for you. Twitter's in. Great. So Twitter is definitely in. But the thing, Michael, you brought out the ego in me, and, and I'm going to now talk about... <laughs> Don't and I'm gonna, blame me. <laughs> you brought this out of me. You brought this out of me because... The, I know when, you're when you, normally so shy, so reserved. <laughs> Never talk about yourself. I'm the best! <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is a, I didn't, I don't like doing podcasts in general because I always feel funny people when you really get to know them. They're actually very dull. And I really <laughs> worry that I'm just the dullest person going on about his ego. I, 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 I honestly, I've become, I, I am a fat, needy man pleading for attention. This is what happens to me. I, at dinner parties, I'm appalling. I take over. I just tell anecdotes. But this, this is the thing that is the greatest thing that ever happened to me and people who know me on Twitter. In fact, if this goes out on Twitter, you know, you make your little yeah. little bits that you put out. If this goes out on that little bit on Twitter and, I, and if I retweet it, I will lose a thousand followers. <laughs> and that's me scoring a goal against RoboKeeper, which is the greatest moment in my life. If you haven't seen it, I ask you to Google it. Mm-hmm. I ask you to look at it. It's a robotic keeper that it took Lionel Messi and Ro- Cristiano Ronaldo and they actually couldn't beat it. There's footage of Messi taking 16 penalties and he couldn't because it moves. It moves as soon as you, 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 your leg is about to hit the ball. It knows where it's going and it moves to where you're going. So you can't give the robo keeper the eyes. It's impossible to score. But I went on the one show and I took one shot and for some reason it went in. <laughs> Maybe it was a glitch. I know that they, they decommissioned robo keeper because if a fat middle aged man, could score with his first kick, there must be something wrong. But I did it, and I mm. did what Lionel Messi couldn't do. And that kind of, I have to say, it it healed every wound of my childhood. It healed <laughs> everything in my life. It's the greatest yeah. moment in my life, and if you see it, you can see it in my face. As soon as I score, I go bananas. Now, the problem is it's it's on a small bit outside Broadcasting House, and it looks like a children's playground. So when I came home, I told my family, they said, we saw you on TV. I said, I did what Messi couldn't do. They said, first of all, this is very inappropriate. And second of all, you've just scored a goal in a children's playground. <laughs> Why is that so great? I said, you don't understand my life. <laughs> this is the greatest goalkeeper there's ever been. It is. It's impossible to beat it. It, it is a robotic keeper that will move to where you're going. And, it knows and- where you're going to hit the ball. It anticipates it. See, I think what happened is you didn't know where you were going to kick it, so it didn't. Ah, maybe, but I'll tell you this. I will say, before I kicked it, I said, is there any chance? He said, And the guy says, 
He goes, there is literally like a millimeter to two millimeters margin of error. But if you go top left, there's a possibility that we've left a little gap, but it's impossible. Mm. I said, okay, I'll just go. So I I shut my eyes and went top left. and And it actually went through. If you play it back, I've played it back. The keeper is there and the ball goes in just where, and there's literally millimeters to spare on each side. Wow. It was the perfect place to hit it. Ah. And I go bananas. I go absolutely bananas. <laughs> it's inappropriate to see a middle-aged man celebrate that much over nothing. Please, please tell me you didn't take your top off. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I really should have. That would have sealed the day for me. But uh, no, I didn't. Absolutely I glorious. What a glorious thing. Promise me that you'll Google it. As soon as we're finished. I'm tempted to do it now, but I won't. I'll do it when we finish. Okay. I will look at it because uh, I, I want to see your face. <laughs> and then I'll pause it and imagine you ripping the top off and doing a Ronaldo. If, if you're a football fan, there's nothing greater that could happen to you, actually. But that was it. Once I did that, then I, 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 the hankering after the creating a memory was gone. That was it. Well, it's a good enough one. Thank you. You can say, well, there is something in football that I'm better than messy at. Yes, and it's so inappropriate, but I'll take it. My ego. (laughs) (laughs) Omid, how lovely to talk to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for telling me those things. As long as I was funnier than Rob Brydon, that's all I care about. (laughs) Most people are. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my fantastic guest, Omid Jalili. Thanks to him for sparing the time, and thanks to you for taking the time to listen. If you had fun, then please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can listen to all past episodes and all the lovely ones we have coming up. You can subscribe with Acast or the podcast provider of your choice. And do rate us if you get a chance. Highly, I hope. You can follow me or my time capsule on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook and you can hear the theme tune in full on Spotify. It was composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens and this has been a cast-off production for Acast. If you'd like to see Omid live, then he'll be touring the country with his show The Good Times Tour, with dates available so far up until November 2022. Yep, that's one hard-working man. All details are on his website. But actually, talking of hard-working men, I've got an exhausting voiceover to record uh, following my success at the Advertising Awards last week. <laughs> yeah, I was there, but I recorded it and then I watched it back afterwards. You know, a bit egotistical, I know, but yeah, it didn't take long. Well, it was the Advertising Awards, so I fast-forwarded through the whole thing. Bye. Bye.